Good morning, everyone. Glad to be with you. My name is Ian, and I uh, send you greetings from my home church in London, Redemption Bible Chapel, one of your sister churches. And I uh, want to thank the music team and uh, those who greeted me this morning. Really felt the love and appreciated that. Uh, so glad to be here. I've uh, just been in London for um, not even a year yet, serving there. Uh, so that's brand new for my family. Before that, we were church planting in Hamilton for about 13 years. And then before that, I grew up in Thornhill, just down Highway 7 from you. And my grandparents have lived in Markham uh, for almost 20 years. So this isn't too foreign of a land for me. Uh, and nice to be here. I want you to... Uh, Take a look at a cartoon we're going to put on the screen here. I assume it's there. There it is. Have you seen this one before? It's a Gary Larson cartoon titled Midvale School for the Gifted. And do you see the trouble (laughs) that this young man is having? And if you don't see the trouble he's having, just tap your neighbor on the shoulder. Ask them to explain it to you. (laughs) You know... Sadly, I think this cartoon illustrates the trouble that a lot of people have when it comes to addressing their biggest problems. Many have got what ruins a person backwards. They've got it the wrong way around. And this, I think, is one reason why personal change and peace are often so hard to come by. We want to improve. We want to solve a personal problem. So what do we do? We start behaving differently. We start speaking differently. But then what? Well, when the pressure's off and the incentive is gone, the changes disappear too. Change can feel so temporary. And you know, even our traditions, even our traditions can seem powerless You know, we've all scratched our heads at at churches that are filled with grumpy and ungrateful people, and they're showing up at the right times, and they're putting money in the right places, and they're singing all the right songs, but after 10 years, are just as grumpy and ungrateful as ever. And you know, our soul-searching can come up empty too. You know, we feel sure about something, and we go with our gut, we make those changes, But after a while, we feel just as unsettled as when we started. When it comes to addressing our biggest problems, when it comes to what ruins us, we often get it the wrong way around. And that's why I thank God for Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. You can open up your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. This is an episode in the life of Jesus Christ where he corrects our self-understanding and he zeroes us in on what really ruins a person. You want to know what your biggest problem is? You want to know what the greatest obstacle is for you and me and our peace and our life with God and one another? Well, Jesus says, It's not out there. It's not out there. It's in here. It's in here. It's my heart. It's your heart. And unless you want to keep 
standing at that door, (laughs) pushing when you could be pulling, you will value Jesus' diagnosis of your heart. And Jesus puts things the right way around for us. He, He gets us looking in the right place. But to get us there, Jesus is going to have to correct two groups of people. All right, one directly and one indirectly, but two groups of people. He's going to talk directly first to religious people, religious people like you and me, people who tend to rely on traditions for their peace and happiness. And then he speaks indirectly to irreligious people, people who tend to rely on their gut feelings for peace and happiness. And I imagine many of us are a combination of the two. But if we hear what Jesus is saying to us in this passage, we're going to come away with an understanding of the human heart. And when we understand the human heart, we'll know what we need. (laughs) And we'll know how we ought to start praying and how we can be more helpful to people that we love and people that we care for if we understand what Jesus is saying about the human heart in this passage. So why don't we just pause for a moment here and we'll pray and then we'll start looking at our passage. Would you bow with me and we'll pray. Father in heaven, we thank you how you've already prepared our hearts this morning through singing songs that exalt Christ, that speak to us the themes and the promises of Scripture. And we remember um, what Isaiah 57 says, all all people are like grass and all our glory is like the flowers of the field and the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Would you please empower our hearts to to connect ourselves to the enduring word? and to live on that word. Help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Let's say amen. Amen. So looking at Matthew 15 here, Matthew 15 starts with a very familiar scene in the gospel, the Pharisees and scribes confronting Jesus. A very common scene in Matthew's gospel. In fact, one of Matthew's goals between chapters 14 and 19, is to show us that things between Jesus and the Pharisees are going from bad to worse. And on this day, the issue is the tradition of hand-washing. The tradition of hand-washing. Let me read uh, verse 1 to 2 for you here. Follow along. It says, The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples... Break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. They do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, the Pharisees are not concerned about Jesus' hygiene. Um, we have some kids here. Have you ever heard your mom say, don't forget to wash your hands? Right? That's not what's going on here. This isn't, you know, Jesus, haven't you heard of Salmonella? Um, you know, Jesus, we've got some hand sanitizer stations set up and just a few little squirts for you and the guys and we'll be okay. We're all in this together. 
right? That's not what's going on here. The concern isn't getting sick. The concern is defilement. Defilement, we're going to see that word actually later in the second half of our passage. Defilement means common, common. Now, that word common doesn't strike us today as anything to worry about. I mean, uh, we eat common corn, we drive common cars, we get the common cold. But I imagine at some point in your life you've read a book or you've seen a movie where uh, a king, he saddles his horse, uh, or a prime minister, he you know, unsuspectedly gets into a taxi, and someone calls out after this king or this prime minister, hey, wh- where are you going? And the response is, out to sea, the commoners. <laughs> I want to be among the common people. That's a little closer to what that word defilement means for Jesus and the Pharisees. It it means the absence of good privilege, the absence of reward, being on the pitiable side of the separation, someone without favor. In the Bible, being defiled is the opposite of being holy. So in Jesus' day, many religious people thought in two categories. They thought in holy or defiled, clean or unclean, pure or immoral, righteous or sinful. And that's what this hand-washing is about for the Pharisees. They're saying to Jesus, you're not doing things the right way. Aren't you afraid of being defiled? (laughs) Aren't you afraid of slipping out of God's favor and becoming common, despised? Aren't you afraid of being ruined by all the sin out there? Now, in verse 3, Jesus answers their question with a sort of point-counterpoint kind of argument. It's wonderful. They ask, Jesus, aren't you afraid of being defiled? And his response in verse 3 is to sort of say, aren't you? Look here at verse 3, what Jesus says. It says, Jesus answered them, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus' answer is, if you think I'm in danger of sin because I'm breaking your traditions... How much danger do you think you are in for breaking God's commands? That's stung. (laughs) We see later in verses 12 to 14 that Jesus is essentially accusing the Pharisees of having it all wrong. Of having it all wrong. Look at verses 12 to 14. Says the disciples came and said to Jesus, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended? <laughs> they were offended when they heard this saying. And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. <laughs> he says of the Pharisees, They don't belong to God. They're spiritually blind and incompetent leaders. What did they have wrong? 
What did they have wrong? Well, you see, ceremonially washing hands before a meal was not a command. It was not a command from God. It was a man-made tradition. Back in the days of Exodus, God had given his people many rituals and ceremonies to perform, like observing holy days and circumcision and sacrifices, food preparation. But these were symbolic and ceremonial laws, not moral or permanent. Think of all those laws in Exodus as external demonstrations of their internal identity. External demonstrations of their internal identity as the holy people of God. External distinctions to exemplify and encourage an internal attitude. And one of the commands was that the priests wash up before preparing food sacrifices. Let me read that for you from Exodus chapter 30, verse 20. That command says, when the priests go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. Now, dirt doesn't bother God. You get that, right? Dirt doesn't bother God. He created it. He walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Dirt doesn't bother God. So what was the purpose of washing hands? The purpose of this cleanliness law, while it was in effect, was to portray something. It was to portray the importance of holiness and to reflect something of God's perfection. But... As you can imagine, we all tend to lean this way as time goes on and the people drifted from God. The point of these ceremonies was forgotten and the emphasis moved from where it properly belonged on the internal attitude, it moved to the external performance. Following rules is easier than submitting the heart. It's easier to follow the rule than to submit the heart to the point of the rule. And we've all been there. We've all been there. We all tend to go that way. (laughs) Ever bought flowers for your wife because you love her? Ever bought flowers for your wife because you had to? (laughs) Same flowers. Ever show up here on a Sunday (laughs) singing at church in wonder at the message and the promises of God? Ever show up on a Sunday and sing at church in wonder if others appreciate your voice? (laughs) Same song. If you're trusting in your external performance to measure your holiness, then the only way to grow is to add tradition, (laughs) is to add more performance, more rules, provide a more expansive performance. 
And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They think, well, hey, if the priests wash their hands before preparing the food sacrifice, I'm going to wash my hands before every meal. And you should too. And this is how much water you should use. And this is how you should scrub. You want to be holy, don't you? And on and on and on and on, the traditions would go. But what they end up with isn't what God had provided a true religion from the heart. No, they've made a religion of procedures. That's what they're left with, a religion of procedures. And Jesus points us out to them with an example in verses 4 to 6. I wonder what example Jesus is going to use to point this out to them. Well, look here at verse 4 to 6. Jesus says to them, For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Honor your father and mother. Does that sound familiar? To you? (laughs) You remember where that comes from in Scripture? You know, it was one of God's primary commandments, one of His top ten. God wants children to do their best to honor their mom and dad, and surely that means obedience, but that wasn't just for kids. You know, when God gave His famous ten commandments, He was speaking primarily to the adults, to the grown-ups. And so one of the primary intentions of that command was to make sure that as parents grow old and become more dependent, their children will look after them and will do what they can to care for them. And this commandment is reiterated in both Old and New Testaments. Honor your father and mother, it was a big one. It was a big one, close to God's heart. But what have the religious leaders done? What have they done? They've, Jesus says, uh, they've voided it. They canceled it so they can keep their traditions. In verse 5, we learned about the Pharisees' temple donation tradition, right, where someone could pledge their wealth and property to the upkeep of the temple after they die. And that's great. (laughs) That shows great devotion to God. But what was going on? Jesus tells us it was being used as a loophole to get out of spending money looking after one's elderly parents, which is what God really wanted. Imagine making a pledge, making a pledge to give all of your assets, all of your wealth to Hope Bible Church after you die. I'm going to give everything to the church when I die. But your 88-year-old mother needs a new place to live and some new equipment for her safety, and she's looking to you. She's got nobody else. She's looking to you. But you say, well, Mom, well, Mom, I would love to help you. No, I would. But the more, the more I give to you, the less I'll have to give to the church. And so I need to keep it all close. I need to keep it all close. You understand, don't you, Mommy? And that pledge, well, that pledge might feel all godly. (laughs) 
It might make you feel all sweet inside. And, you know, when you make it public, you're going to get a lot of Instagram posts, hashtag so generous. (laughs) But what would God think of it? What would God think of that? Well, look what Jesus says in verses 7 to 9. Jesus says, You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says it's hypocrisy. It's vain worship, which means it's an empty show. God hated it then in the days of Isaiah, and he hates it now. It's the wrong way around. God does not draw near when we replace internal obedience from the heart with external performance. And in these verses, Jesus gives us a direct warning about our Christian traditions. Our Christian traditions. If we're not careful, our traditions can mask hearts that are actually far, far from God. If we're not careful, traditions can mask hearts that are far, far from God. Now, not all tradition is bad. Not all tradition is bad. I have learned things from my grandmother's faith that are a part of my life, and I never want to lose it. I never want to lose those things. You know, there's this famous quote about tradition that says, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Tradition is the living faith of the dead, which means tradition is how our ancestors in the faith speak to us today. It's how they speak to us today. It's how, the, it's how the torch is passed. It's how we learn to do the Christian life. We learn from those who have come before us. I mean, think about it in our own little Sunday service here. You know, other than a place to meet and Bibles to read and elders to teach and train, most everything else we have when we gather has been given to us by tradition. By tradition. Because of tradition, we sing songs from how great thou art to living hope to Lord, I need you. Because of tradition, we sing songs like that instead of chanting the Psalms in monotone. Aren't you grateful (laughs) for tradition? (laughs) And it's because of tradition that on communion Sundays, we each get a small cup and a cracker instead of all slurping from the same jug. Aren't you grateful for tradition? We should value our traditions and not discard them lightly. There's a second part to that quote, though. Tradition is the living faith of the dead, but traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. If our traditions are prized more than gospel growth, if our traditions are performed without knowledge of Christ, if our traditions have become more important than the word of God like they were for the Pharisees, we've got it wrong. We've got it wrong. Our faith is dead, or at best it's on life support. 
Is your religion external or is it internal? Is your faith external or is it internal? Is it a matter of procedure or is it a matter of the heart? Jesus is speaking to me about this. Is he speaking to you? Is he getting through to you? Are you preoccupied by church attendance and Bible studies and Christian news watch? All the while, like the Pharisees, trouble forgetting to obey God in things like caring for the poor and needy of the world tied up with things that make us happy and comfortable rather than caring for hurting people right here in our own church family. Verses 1 to 9 are here for us religious people who tend to rely on our traditions for our peace and happiness. But God wants heart obedience. He wants heart obedience. Let's not get things the wrong way around. Verses 1 to 9 speak a pretty direct word to religious people. I think verses 10 to 20, what comes next, speaks to irreligious people. You know, instead of tradition, people who, like a lot in our Canadian culture today, tend to rely on their gut feelings for peace and happiness. You know, we can get things the wrong way around like that, too. You see, the Pharisees believed sin was a bit like an infection. Sin was contagious. And so if you avoided the wrong kind of food, the wrong kind of people, the wrong places, you could avoid catching it. And the goal of life for them was to be uncontaminated. And so their strategy was, their strategy was focus on the externals. If all the bad stuff is out there, you just need to avoid it. And then your biggest problems have been solved. Now, not many in our culture today would call it sin. But most people, I think, would agree that there are unwanted feelings and behaviors and attitudes that one can contract. And these evils can become, to use a popular word, systemic (laughs) to who you are. But I think there's a different strategy at play for dealing with that than there was for the Pharisees. The Pharisees saw evil out there and they worked to avoid it. People today, they see evil out there and they look inward. (laughs) They go with their gut, their intuitions to put things right, to find their true, unadulterated self to find solutions. The evil's out there. I don't want it in, so I gotta look inward to find the solutions. And we see in verses 10 to 20 that people aren't totally wrong about sin. People aren't totally wrong about sin. It is a threat. It is a kind of contamination. They've just got it the wrong way around. (laughs) The mistake is location. Location. It's not out there. It's in here. It's not out there. It's in here. Let's read again here. I'm going to read verse 10, and then I'm going to jump down and read verses 17 to 20. All right, verse 10, and then 17 to 20. It says, And he, Jesus, called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth 
that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Go down to verse 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Can I repeat verse 19 and 20 there for you? For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is a location correction. A location correction. Jesus says, you're concerned about what comes in? I'm concerned about what comes out. (laughs) What ruins you isn't from out there. It's from in here. You know, years ago I heard a Bible teacher by the name of Sam Albury from the UK, and he gave a helpful summary of Jesus' point here. He said, sin is not out there to be avoided. It's in here to be confessed. Isn't that good? Sin is not out there to be avoided. It's in here to be confessed. And he pointed out that it's popular in our own culture to believe that to truly flourish, you've got to understand who you really are. You need to look down deep inside your heart, discover your true self, your true identity. And once you've found that, you've got to embrace it and don't let anyone get in your way. You've got to, got to live it out, and then you'll be free, and then you'll be happy. But Jesus says, if you look deep inside your heart, you're not going to find solutions. You're going to find the trouble. You're going to find the trouble. You'll only find the source of evil thoughts and actions, and desires, and attitudes, and ways of living. The primary problem in life is not them, it's you. The primary problem in life is not them, it's you. Sin is not out there to be avoided, it's in here to be confessed. You are your biggest problem. I am my biggest problem. That's what ruins a person. That's what defiles you and me, our own corrupt hearts. The Bible doesn't tell us we are sinners because we choose to sin. No, we choose to sin because we are sinners. The sinful heart is the cause of sinful choices. And there's a lot of evidence for that. I don't have to work very hard this morning to convince you of that. I mean, pick one from the menu in verse 19. <laughs> Look at verse 19. Ever had evil thoughts? Maybe you haven't murdered somebody, but have you ever hated anybody? Jesus says, same root. <laughs> ever committed adultery? Maybe not, but have you ever lusted after somebody? What about sexual immorality? Ever cherished a thought or acted in a way outside of a faithful marriage between a husband and a wife? What about theft? 
Ever stolen an idea? Ever stolen time? Ever stolen money? What about false witness? What about false witness? Ever say something about someone else that was untrue? To flatter them? Or to flatter yourself? What about slander? Ever speak unfairly? It doesn't take me long. It doesn't take me long. You ever been out in the garden and uh, you flip that rock over? My heart is like an ant's nest. I turn over the rock and I peek under the stone and I see how many and lively those little ants are. Our hearts are like ants' nests. (laughs) Our hearts aren't right. Scripture explains this in two ways. First, original sin and then total depravity. Both things are true. Original sin and total depravity. Original sin, sinfulness marks everyone from birth. We're born with a twisted heart, motivated to live for self. And then there's total depravity. Our hearts are corrupted. That doesn't mean we're as bad as we might be. It just means that nothing we do is untouched by sin, so that nothing we do is as good as it should be. Original sin, total depravity. (laughs) Do you remember King David? Remember King David when he was caught having murdered someone to hide in a fair? And when when he came to God after that, he didn't say, Lord, Lord, I'm sorry. Please remember all the people I haven't murdered. And please remember all the wives I haven't slept with. No, he didn't say that. And and David didn't say, Lord, I'm sorry. Please remember the pressure I'm under and and how other kings behave. (laughs) No. David said, and this is in Psalm 51, verse 5, David prayed, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. One scholar said, Far from attempting to downplay his own guilt, David refers to his birth and conception in the clear realization that his very being is shot through and through with the tendencies that produced the fruits of adultery and murder. As far back as he can go, he sees his life as sinful. And if you're honest, you'll admit that's your story too. Traditions aren't enough. Gut feelings aren't enough. There is something radically wrong with the human heart, and the symptoms will vary from person to person, but the condition is the same. Sin is not out there to be avoided. It's in here to be confessed. Now, why has Jesus told us all of that? just to make us feel bad (laughs) and to leave us helpless? No, of course not. (laughs) This is where Jesus starts his best work. This is where he starts his best work. This is the first step. (laughs) And we just moved to London this year. We've been doing some home renovations before moving in. And if you're like me, you know, anything beyond painting, changing the faucets, um, anything beyond that, 
and I start to reveal my ignorance. (laughs) And sure enough, I always get to a place where I go, well, I don't know what to do here. (laughs) We've got a problem, something we want to change, but I don't know where to start. And then what happens in my life sooner or later, somebody comes over, typically it's my father or my father-in-law, and they look around that same room, and they say, huh, you know what? Here's the problem. If we did this, then we could. And I think to myself, fantastic. (laughs) Somebody knows what to do. Somebody sees the problem, and we can get moving. I finally know that there's hope. (laughs) There's hope. And that's what Jesus does for us here. We can hear Jesus in Matthew 15 and say to ourselves, finally, somebody who sees clearly, somebody who knows what's wrong, somebody who knows what's backwards, someone who can address our greatest need. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. It's exactly what he came to do. All the way back in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. We can't save ourselves because we are the problem. We are the problem on our own. We could never want God enough or please God enough to make any difference. But our evil thoughts, our murder and anger, our adultery, our sexual immorality, our theft, our false witness, our slander are no match for the grace of God in Jesus Christ. No match. Jesus comes to us and he can fix our greatest problem because he has come to change hearts He has come to change hearts. Our merciful God gives his children a new heart to love him and desire to serve them. How does he do this? He does this through the work of Jesus who died on a cross so God could first forgive the sinful heart. Jesus died on a cross to first forgive the sinful heart. And then God does this through the work of the Holy Spirit who unites the believer to Jesus spiritually so God can renovate the, the sinful heart year by year through his presence. <laughs> Forgiveness and renovation for the sinful heart. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. And once we understand the heart, once we understand the problem and we know what we need, we know how to start praying. We know how to start praying. Charles Wesley, an old Christian songwriter, he has a song that sings, Oh, for a heart to praise my God, a heart from sin set free. That can be our song. (laughs) One of the great reformers and church leaders of the past, John Calvin, he had as his logo and motto a, a heart held out in the palm of a hand and the words, I offer my heart to you, Lord, readily and sincerely. (laughs) That's how we can start to pray. That's how we can start to pray when we come to Jesus in Matthew 15. That's the the transformation that God works in his people, a new heart, a new heart that wasn't there before, a heart for God. 
And then once we know that, we'll, we'll know how to, we can focus our care and our ministry to others. Right? As you look around at other people in your church family, you'll, you'll know how you can start caring for them and ministering to them because you'll know that lasting change doesn't come through tradition. It doesn't come through looking deep down. Lasting change always takes place through the pathway of the heart. Forgiveness and renovation. You know, there, there's an old saying that says, fruit change is the result of root change. Have you heard that? Fruit change is the result of root change. Changes of behavior, of thinking, of speaking come from changing the root, the heart. <laughs> so with our kids and with our friends and with our neighbors, we're going to focus on the thoughts and desires of the heart. And we're going to start asking that God would use us as we prayerfully share God's word one to another to produce heart change in others. Because it's only through heart change that we'll see new words and new choices and new actions. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that gives us confidence to believe that the heart which can be, as Jeremiah 17 tells us, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That that heart, which can be deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, that that heart can also become the home of God's love and God's spirit. What an incredible, supernatural miracle. What a gift that that heart can become the home of God's love and the spirit of God. Romans 5.5 says, And hope does not put us to shame, which means we can have a hope that endures because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Your heart can be filled with the love of God through the Holy Spirit. Grace Grace is that God makes an evil heart Christ's home. God makes an evil heart Christ's home. You know, many have got things the wrong way around. Traditions aren't enough. Soul-searching gut feelings aren't enough. Sin is not out there to be avoided. It's in here to be confessed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us Matthew 15, for preserving these words of Jesus, the one who finally sees clearly what our problem is and doesn't leave us there, but gives us the rest of the gospel to know that when we hope in Christ, the love of God is poured into our hearts and we can begin to see change and live for you like we've never lived for you before. Would you help us in this, we pray. Amen.